Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Ross Kemp. Over the last 18 years, I've made some 90-odd documentaries predominantly in hostile environments, from Afghanistan to Syria, from El Salvador to the Congo. And it's fair to say that during that time, I found myself in a few interesting situations. I've been shot at, tear gassed, had knives pulled on me and spears thrown at me. But in all those years, what's impressed me the most is the resilience of the human spirit. Our ability, no matter where we're from, to overcome and make it through to the other side. So, in my new series, The Kempcast, I'll be talking to some incredible individuals who all have engaging stories to tell and have themselves overcome some extremely tough moments in their lives. Right now, we're living in unprecedented times, and we should be doing all we can together to get through this as safely as possible. I hope that if you subscribe to the Kempcast and hear how my guests overcame their toughest moments, it may help you overcome yours, whether you're going through one right now or you're faced with one in the future. Joining me today is Mark Dempster, a former addict. He's now an addiction specialist and author. He spent years addicted to drugs and alcohol, which eventually led him to dealing, drug smuggling, prison and homelessness. Mark, thank you so much uh, for agreeing to talk to me. Um, um, we met uh, through Russell, didn't we? Aye, uh, Russell's uh, house, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Russell Aye. Brand, top man. Um, I love him, uh, I love him. Yeah, very, very kind man. I, um, I, I, I love him dearly. Um, you're now um, an addiction specialist, Mark. Yeah. And you've had a very interesting life. Yeah. You know, you, you have been an addict, not only of alcohol, but also many many different types of, uh, of drugs i guess um can we all become addicts well it's a good question isn't it it's a good question because um i think we've got the propensity as human beings we you know if you look at society as a whole where we are now we've got the highest rates of obesity we've got the highest rates of uh, credit card debt you know uh, shopping and if we look across the board right of what people do to fix uh, any uncomfortable feelings or, or or continue a compulsive behavior there's so many different areas that people fix on now of course you know some of them are as i said just before our interview started here there uh, some of them are very socially accepted addictions like the pursuit of money right the pursuit of fame the pursuit of uh, you know, kudos, prestige, um, so that, you know, the chief exec of a company who works 14 hours or 16 hours a day is not necessarily looked at 
as as an addict, he's looked at as a very successful businessman. Yeah, yeah. His family have been neglected, right? So he doesn't see his kids. He never puts them. He doesn't bath them. He doesn't. He's got nannies looking after them. Do you know he's a? You know they hardly ever see him. He hardly sees his wife. His wife starts having an affair. You know, like you, you know, you think about. Um, so d- d- does everybody have an addictive personality? I think, or, or the propensity to become an addict. Propensity. Oh yeah, I think. I think. Right. You know that thing they say, Ross, about they do these twin studies in Sweden, and they and they and they took, you know, so they took uh, children from addicts from addictive families, and then they put them in those children into non-addictive families, and they came up with like fifty percent. Right, and then they do this thing called the marshmallow test. Do you ever heard of the marshmallow test? Where tell me, I the marshmallow test is where you get a group of kids in a school. What they done years ago is they they looked through two way glass and they watched and they said to the kids that are all sitting in the classroom, they said, uh, "Okay, you can have you can have one marshmallow now, or if you wait twenty minutes, you can have two marshmallows." Right when the teacher comes back. And they watched the class, and, and they done this was long term studies of the kids, and they could see the kids that went straight for the, the one marshmallow, immediate gratification thing. Just you know, they they obviously didn't have the skills, the tenacity, or the resilience to delay the gratification uh, at that time, right? And they watched the kids who delayed it, and they were like tapping on the desk, they were whistling, they were doing like they were developing strategies to delay the gratification. And then they followed up and watched the kids who delayed the gratification 20 years, 25 years later. And of course, they, were, they, they, were, they had been much more successful in a number of different areas in their life, around relationships, around career. The kids that just went for that impulsive, quick hit. And it's, it's pleasure, isn't it? They're just, you know, so, so what makes us, you know, what makes some of us, you know, an addict so they say there's a predisposing gene, right? So I've got an alcoholic father, an alcoholic grandfather. So the likelihood is I've got the predisposing gene, uh, but but not necessarily do I become an addict, right? Because then you've got to think of what's the perfect storm for it, you know? So early trauma, childhood trauma. Well, you had that, didn't you? I had that violent father, at times violent father, volatile i I was a lot of the beginning of your book yeah is talking about that time there was your mum uh trying to hold it together but your dad was an addict and and you could say some people will be listening to this and going oh that you know he was intent on destroying himself and his family or maybe he was just sick right yeah and people see it in very different ways and i don't think that that view has changed even today, even though, you know, um, that happened a very, a long time ago, particularly, you know, um, it, uh, particularly in, in sort of working class or unemployed areas of Britain. And it's still happening today. And it may not be alcohol, it may be another substance. But um, it happens, so you talk about Glasgow and you talk about, you know, the sort of depression that affected the area when the industry went down there. Shipbuilding gone, yeah, all that, yeah. No hope. Uh, people then confined into high-rise blocks. So if you look at the, you know, if you just take the different, the perfect storm again, right, you you then, it's like the, the, the rat park story as well. Uh, um, but basically, and I'll, I'll come back to that if we get the chance about rat park, but you, uh, 
you put people in high-rise buildings, right? No hope for the future, no, no possibility of employment. Uh, so social deprivation coupled with confined into small spaces. And then you throw in some drugs or alcohol and amongst it all, you've got like the perfect storm. And that's what happened to Glasgow. And that's what happened to a lot of these cities, the northern cities, Liverpool, Manchester. You, I mean, you see it, it's like London was, you know, the same to, you know, you know, and, so especially up there, what what happened? And then you've got the you've got the sectarianism. You've got the 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 bitterness. You know the I, I guess some of the transgenerational influences that get passed down yeah. from one from one parent group. You know, like one generation to the next about you know the anti English thing, or you know the you, you know especially amongst maybe the Catholics or your team. Yeah, whether it's blue, whether it's green and white. Yeah. Like green and white, the Celtic Rangers thing. We hate that. We hate the Protestants. But all of that, a lot of that, and and I'm not going to generalise. A lot of that is deflecting the fact that if I can't be proud of the fact that I can go to work and earn a job, to fulfil the fact that I can have my pint at the end of the day, then I will be the toughest bloke in that pub, or I'll be the best criminal around, or I will earn my kudos in another way. Yeah. Because do you know what? There isn't the opportunity. There isn't an opportunity for me to go and put rivets in the side of a ship. Yes. Yeah. True or yeah. not? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. And, and, and then if you think about, okay, so as a man, you know, this is when it gets a bit deeper, isn't it? Like, okay, so my sense of value as a man, then if, I, if, I, if I'm not inheriting that from, you know, we get, we get mostly our self-esteem from, from the work that we do, and from our relationship, our, our intimate relationship. So if I'm not, you know, if I've not got a relationship or a, or a woman who sort of, not, I'm not saying it should always be validated by your partner or your wife, but, but if you don't feel that sense of uh, acceptance from, from that area and you've not got a job, then you're going to be really, you're likely to be quite shaky and insecure. And then you, 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 you know, and then you've got role models I mean, look, look at, look at the, I mean, like within particular communities, what kind of sort of role models then you gravitate to where, where you're not encouraged to have healthy sort of role models, you know, because it's not seen as cool. People want to be tough, want to be hard, looking up to particular, now one of my friends, Paul, Paul Ferris is, it was a gangster back then and he, you know, so a lot of people would look up to him and go, oh, he's really cool because he's, he's violent. Do you know what I mean? But, but what does that, what does it really mean? What, what, why do you think he's really cool? Because he's, you know, because he's, he's, you know, I'm not saying no disrespect to Paul. Now, reading your, you know, reading your book, it, it is a story of like, you, you know, you got moved around a bit and each time, and you're very honest about it. I love it. You know, you talk about, well, I wasn't going to be number one, but if I could be number two, in terms of the, the biggest fighter in the school, with uh, your John Wayne look, yeah, yeah, you had to give your John Wayne look, and you had to face them out, and and you and you admit very openly, as I would, you know, I've often got the bronze medal, not even the silver medal in the fight, <laughs> mate. Look at, look at the face, um, but um, but you're very honest about that, and then you're very honest about the fact that you know because your dad really, you know, even though your dad was tough but because he was drinking so much, he was becoming weaker and weaker. And your mother was always there for you and she's still there for you now. And yeah, now yeah. maybe you're there for her more. Yeah. Um, she's this guiding light that you've always had around you. Amazing. She sounds like an amazing lady. But 
But that wasn't just symptomatic of your household. That was symptomatic of many households yeah. across, across the United Kingdom, right? I absolutely. Absolutely. It didn't just happen in industrial areas. It happened in, you know, in farming or rural areas as well. If poverty and alcohol came together, kids suffered. Wives suffered generally, yeah. Yeah, domestic violence, a lot of domestic violence. And also what happened there, Ross, definitely, we had a, a denial system. Like we had a, a sort of justification and rationalisation about, about drinking and about... Oh, we are we we work hard and we play hard. We we are heavy drinkers. No one was really admitting back then, or oh, we're alcoholics. You know, we're actually like powerless over this substance that we've got. You know, we've got this illness really that you know because we are low self-esteem, because we're sensitive, because we we have no we have no hope or future. We feel that we've got no hope or future, no sense of belonging really. Uh, you know, so what what tended to happen then is there was a there was just like people would do the same thing over and over again. They would they would maybe go if they had a job, they'd go to work, come back on the Thursday, Friday night. They might give their wife their pay packet. They might not. They might go straight to the pub, and then they were there. And that's what it was like when when, when my dad is like he would just disappear, and uh, and what would happen is he would go on a binge. And then we would see him, and then he'd be in the, this sort of withdrawal. Eventually, he'd be in the withdrawals, and then he would have the hallucinations and the, the cold turkey, really the, the DTs. And I witnessed that when I was really young. So I, I started to witness that when I was really young, like, so five or six years old, I'd, I'd be, because I remember getting really freaked out, like frightened, like him walking up and down one night, and he was starting to hallucinate. He's, he's seeing snakes, and he's seeing spiders, yeah. and he's seeing... Uh, uh, your mum's mother staring I at you. I did, Grandma, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you saw the same things. So even witnessing that did not in any way deter you from the path that you were on. In fact, you started drinking a special brew when he passed out, right? When yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you thought it was cool. Because you thought it was cool. Aye. Because I thought, because I, I thought, oh, I want, and what happened with that first can of special brew is I drank that back I remember, I remember identifying inside myself. There was no feelings. My feelings, my my thoughts, and my feelings were quashed, and I could feel, I felt like the glow of the special bruise that hit the I guess the receptor sites in the brain, and and then I, I I thought, and I thought this must be what it's like to be normal, right? So therefore, and I had that, it was really poignant sort of thought, this must be what it's like to be normal. So therefore, I, I felt abnormal from quite a young age. I felt um, defective, like there was something wrong with me. I was flawed. I, the, and the special brew just worked. It worked. It, it, it was It was like... It was like I was like fruit on a tree that was ripe for addiction. When I took that, you know, like as soon as I took that special brew, it was like, oh, this is the solution, right? Not that I wanted because of my dad's alcoholism. I want, I didn't no way I wanted to be an alcoholic. But I, I, so when drugs came along later on, I took to them like a doctor water because. Uh, I could stay in denial about it. It wasn't. It, I wasn't an alcoholic, but I, I could be an addict. <laughs> I could be. 
which sounds mad, but absolutely it made total sense at the time, right? Because that's where yeah. you were. Can incidents in your childhood set off a chain of events that will lead you to, to addiction? Well, 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 I, I think, right, I think early exposure, right, I think trauma, some type of, uh, so where the amygdala is getting, to, right, so we're in the brain, obviously, I've got the amygdala, the fight, flight, freeze, fawn response, and I think with my relationship with my dad from a young age, where there was this inconsistency, there was this volatility that at any moment, he could just go crazy. Bang, yeah. I could go, and I was always beside the door, Ross. I was always like my shoes off. My, I'd never take my shoes off. You know, like I'd always be beside the door, looking all the time, watching every sort of mannerism, really, of him, in case it's dangerous, isn't it? We're content. You know, there's a guy, a, a friend of mine, wrote a book, and he talks about he thinks that addicts, like when there was hunter gat back in hunter gatherer times, we would have been the watchers of the tribe. We would have been like. Uh, the gatekeepers of the tribe because we're so sensitive and we, we, we're so perceptive around potential danger. So I think what happens in the brain and it happened for me was because of that heightened amygdala response, which then is on a lot of the time, whereas people don't, you know, like generally, you know, if it's only like maybe a car comes really fast beside us, then we get that sense of danger. But if you're around a situation which is traumatic, which is dangerous a lot of the time, your amygdala is continually switched on. And what's coming with that is you're getting a you're getting an up, you're getting a high in the reward system. And then and then uh, so I, I've got some of that, and then coupled with early exposure to drugs. So 15, you know, the brain's not fully formed, isn't it? You know, at that point, earlier than that, I'm drinking, earlier than that, I'm starting to act out in addictive behaviors to look for attention. So already setting yourself up with the, 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 the sort of dangerous role models, really. So those factors, early exposure, trauma, and then maybe a genetic factor. But you, you went from, from alcohol to, to smoking cannabis. Yeah. How old were you when you first smoked cannabis? I, I, was only I was 15, right, which is still a wee bit later, right, than, than most, you know, because there's a lot of guys in Glasgow back then that got into, that just jumped, didn't do this sort of textbook progression of going through various drugs, went straight from, straight from, shoot, just straight to shooting up heroin. Like, yeah. uh, you know, pre-puberty, right? So they're not even, they've not even hit, because we develop, isn't it like, as, you know, as human beings, as when we're 14, 15, 16, we go through puberty, we've got all the hormones rushing through the body, so we're, we're, we're developing skills and resources internally, how to deal with life and, and creating this. Much. So if you're already starting to numb out on heroin, say a really you know highly addictive substance is heroin, painkiller, best painkiller in the world, and you're already doing that when you're 14 years old, right? You've got no resilience, right? You've got, so you start using at 14, then you say, hopefully you get clean whenever, say you get clean at 30, you're stuck. Your emotional development is stuck at a 14-year-old, but you're in a 32-year-old man's body. So you get into a relationship when you're 32 years old, you're clean, but you're a 14-year-old kid. You know what I mean? Really, because you, you, you've not went through all the, 
the things that people go through in life, breakups in relationships, people dying, trying to get a job, not succeeding, failures. You know, if you're just numbing all the time with heroin or alcohol, it doesn't matter really what the substance does it. I mean, I'm just using heroin as an example. But you're basically not, you're not present. You're not present. You're not, you're not growing. You're not, look, and if, it's like everything in life, isn't it? If it's not growing, it's decaying or it's stagnant, you know? So, so like what happens there is you're stuck at that emotional age. And, you know, obviously then you're going into every experience with the mind of a 14 or a 15 year old teenager, really. How are, what are 15 year old teenagers? I mean, I've got two teenagers. I mean, like, so like, would I trust them in me? <laughs> do you talk? Do you talk to them? I mean, you, you make the great thing about you is Mark is you, you're very self-deprecating. You tell the truth, and we get onto some really interesting stories in a minute. But do you talk to them about addiction and drugs? Um, what I've got with them definitely is that I I have an open sort of communication with them that they feel I think they trust that they can say anything to me and that I, I can help them. Right, and, and what would your advice be, even to me, because yeah. I've been exposed to drugs, I mean, grow up, we grow up, we've been, and I've been, you know, all over the world, and Aye. been and seen, and made, I mean, I think we made three and a half million pounds worth of cocaine one afternoon in the Rye Valley, with Shining Path, yeah, you, and I know you've done equally mad things. Um, you know, you come home and you find cocaine in your kids, pocket yeah and they're 14 what, what what's how do you play that one i i know i know well you'd you'd want you'd sit down what i would do if i was in that situation i'd make some time i'd say right okay and i'd sit i'd sit my son down and my daughter down and i'd say look this is look i found the cocaine right i wouldn't be around i'd say look i found the cocaine don't like going for your pockets, son, but I, it didn't, I wouldn't have been there, but I did. And that's it. I, Sorry. I, did, I, I thought, I, I, yeah, and, and I've got it now. And, and look, and, you know, and I can say, look, I'm sorry about that. This is how I got, I got to that point. But, but ultimately, okay, tell me about what it is. Like, what, what's your relationship like with it? What is it that you're doing? You know, what is it you're doing? How much are you using it? Are you using, has it just been given to you just off chance? A friend had it? Or is it something that I we are we together should need to be concerned about, you know, like, but in a way that it's like, okay, so how do we resolve if it is, but it might just be obviously it's a one-off thing and it, and it just happened. Yeah. Because yeah, if you go too heavy, you push away. They push. Oh, no way. Ah, you don't want to do that. And you don't want to come across punitive, Ross. You don't want to come across. No way, man. I'm going to punish you for having this. I, I, because, you just, yeah, because then that creates right away defensiveness. You're pushing it under. You're pushing it away. You're, you're making yeah. it behind it, right? Because yeah, you've only got certain windows. What I realise about this, a lot of times we're working with clients, is, you know, there's often only, there's a window of opportunity where you can sort of get on, you can sort of like, where somebody's a bit more vulnerable or somebody's receptive to talking about it. And it's about being able to identify when those win being able to identify the window and then because once that's closed, it's really difficult because you're met with an ego, you know, and and certainly what I find is it's always got to be done one to one, you know, like with any you know, that 
it's not done in a, a, a forum where the child or so, or, the, or, or anyone, the adult, feels shame or because they're, they're trying to protect their ego really around it because there's other people listening. So it's a delicate one as well, isn't it? How do you take all that into consideration? Like, that what's likely to get the best response, isn't it? What's my approach to... to to this that will get it's likely to get the best response but but, but overall what you're, you're saying your advice is it, it shouldn't be punitive it should shouldn't be let's be talk about this let's yeah. work out is it an occasional thing you're doing it with your friends i do yeah. you need to, do you need to take this every week where yeah. are we and, and 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 please let's talk about it because if we can talk about it then we've got a better understanding of it i guess and yeah. and then in every case and every individual and you know this better than me is individual <laughs> when none of us we're all unique and none of us are the same. Let's talk a bit more about, about you, mate. So yeah, you have this pretty, I mean, it is kind of textbook, you know, hard Glaswegian childhood. Yeah. Um, but you, you sort of like, yeah, with the John Wayne look, Aye, but, but yeah. you, you want to, you, you like the idea of becoming Glasgow's Pablo Escobar, don't you really? Yeah. yeah. You've got it into your head. And, you know, you meet Claire, the kind of posh English girl. Yeah. You fall in love with you, fall in love, you start yeah. traveling, but everything is sort of related to or connected to narcotics. Yeah. You know, yeah. but you're mixing lots of things because you're into the spiritualism, you're into the gangsterism, <laughs> yeah. aren't you? And there's a lot of things, there's a lot of conflicting things going on there, man. Yeah, exactly. But also, they were mixed with something else, which was, you were highly dependent by this point. Yeah. You were smoking, I mean, you were smoking like, a lot of hash, Loads right? of cannabis, yeah, yeah, loads of cannabis every day, and the best quality from the, look, the quality now, the THC that the kids are smoking, that's why lots of the young people are developing mental health. Uh, we'll come to that, we'll come to that. that. Brilliant, man, right, okay. So, so I, I am... There's you, there's you. It's the eight, mid 80s, right? Mid 80s, yeah. Been up in the mountains, been in the, in the Himachal Pradesh, been right into the villages, right? Where, where, uh, the, uh, where the, the, the sort of, they're called untouchables, but uh, not untouchables, but basically you can't, they're not untouchables. They're, they're Brahman, they're Brahman, but we can't touch any of the, any of the, the, the parts of the village. We can't touch the people. We can't even pay for the biscuit. We've got to put the, money on the on the on the desk on the like the the, the little uh whatever counter that they've got and 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 the chillum you have to pick, pick up from the ground you know and chillum chillum being the chillum's the pipe guys the pipe, pipe. The smoke guy they all and you smoke the, the cannabis from that yeah the right yeah you basically load the chillum with tobacco you you it's it's like a cone all it is is like a cone it's made of clay the best ones are made in a place called pondicherry in india as I reach for the chillum uh, this morning with Claire, uh, I'll go on and I can talk about them villages and stuff as well because that was they were mad times. But but that um, she said to me, she says you love, and I, you know, like sometimes you get this really strong and somebody says something to you, and you're just a bit more conscious than you are normally, and it leaves an impression. Um, and she said to me, you love hashish more than you love me and of course i said of course i don't claire i love you more than in the world you know some type of comment like that 
But actually it resonated in me and I thought, of course I love Ash. <laughs> of course I love Ash more than I love her because this is the top of the tree. Like my, uh, the addiction is the, you can't, there's no room really for much else really apart from feeding the addiction, finding ways and means to get more of it really. The, as much as you might want to have, you know, and I did, and I, I, obviously when I did meet Claire at, at the beginning, I, I fell in love with her, I met her in front, you know, but, but really, really, if I had to choose, you know, my addiction or Claire, it would have been my addiction. The addiction eventually will overtake all, yeah? Oh, oh. When did you, going back to you, when did you decided, um, I don't know, I'm going to be the Chapo Guzman, I'm going to be the Pablo <laughs> Escobar, uh, you know, of Scotland, because you, 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 you realise that just like many people, Curtis Warren, for instance. I can't see again. I mean, he realised, for those of us that don't yeah. know, yeah. he was one of the first guys, Liverpudlian, that worked out, if I go to where they make it and bring it back myself, or get somebody else eventually to bring it back for me, I make a huge profit because I cut out the variant middlemen who are all taking a slice of the, of the profits. Yeah, uh, and and that's what you, in your own way, that's I mean by your own you know by your own description you know nothing to declare you know it's how you know confessions of an unsuccessful drug smuggler because the ones that are successful we don't really know who they are do we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think even right even the successful ones, I I think they can right right. So this depends on whether or not. I think what my experience is, the successful ones, they just keep doing it. Because there's so much money. I mean, oh, so much money, so much money. You're, I mean, buying, you're, you're talking about you can't get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, if you, and if you think if you're doing it on a bigger scale, look, these guys that I was working with back then, the Irish guys, they were making amphetamine sulfate, right? Now, this was back, so this is back in 86. And so they were making it here in this country. In fact, the Lucart, called the Lucart reaction. It was like a seven hour process, bathtub, just filling it into a bathtub really. And they were making the speed. So, so the outlay really would be to get the BMK, the various chemicals that they need. The outlay was very little. They, you know, eventually they started doing it in farms and stuff. But then say, say they would make 40 kilos or 50 kilos of speed. So it might cost them, say, like £10,000 to make it, right? But then they've got 50 kilos, right? They sell each kilo for £2,000. That's £100,000. But they can't, sell, they can't sell 50 kilos at that strength. They've got to cut it. So they've got to, they've got to put an adulterant in there and make it. So they make it from 50 into 150, right? So then we're starting to look at the numbers. Then you're talking, you're talking 300000 the 300 grand on a 10 grand investment. I mean, where do you get, I mean, where do you, you know, even, you know, so, and, and they're doing that, they can do that, you know, they've got the networks, the sophisticated criminal networks, especially, you know, if you're, if you're supplying the whole of the UK, when Fetman Sulfate, you're the top of the tree saying you're doing that, you know, uh, you're making that. I mean, I mean, I used to walk into these guys' houses and there would just be money everywhere bags of money <laughs> and and i'd be sitting there and there'd be guns and there'd be you know like there's a shotgun there's usually a shotgun at the door and then and and then just lots and lots of money and 
so the profits are just did that generate did that generate your inner will to go and start smuggling yeah well i got well what started to happen then is because you surround yourself you know you surround yourself we become like our environment i mean like if i'm i guess what happens here isn't it and this this applies really in recovery as well about the friends that i have in recovery and about who i aspire to so in recovery I, I in recovery from addiction and like just my daily life i i always try and do better and lots of that i think about oh a lot of my friends not necessarily are successful but maybe what they do they've they've, they've been driven or they're, they're goal orientated or they want to achieve a particular thing and they push themselves and what happens to me when i'm around people like that it inspires me instead of having like instead of having envy for them the opposite envy is admiration. So I admire, I say, oh, well, what's the positive qualities? And, you know, what is it that I see in them that, you know, they're achieving whatever goals is. Talk about Nick. And Nick gets, uh, Nick was a guy that used to go, yeah. uh, did a, a lot of acid, right? And yeah, yeah. You bump into him all over, you bump into India, you, you know, he's on a rap, he goes off to India. You meet him in India. You met a lot of people that you knew. Yeah, yeah. had all done this runner to India and they were all involved with the same sort of idea. A, of getting high, but also of making plenty of money by yeah. trying to import stuff through. And yeah. for some, like Ross or Rossi, your mate, I, yeah, yeah, it went horribly wrong, right? Mm, mm. As it did for you, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> As it probably does for most people who are I, working yeah. in that area. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
you think? Do you think if you'd been totally clean, Mark? Yeah, you would have been more successful. Uh, yeah, that's a really it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because look, we've got to always think about. You no, know, Jack, uh, would I be? It's a it's a commodity, isn't it? Like it's like any type of sale. You know, like if you buy a product, you know, like if you think of it. Uh, if it had been, say, silk or something in India that I was buying and bringing that across, I could have been maybe equally successful. And, or or not, not that I was successful, but I could have, uh, if I had those skills, those entrepreneurship skills, uh, yeah, then I could have just applied it to something else. I just happened to apply it to something that was illegal and really ultimately very destructive for me because I got chemically addicted to it. But if I'd been clean, look, my friend went off when I was uh, uh, many years ago, and he said this was way back. He he had a really good, really good business around courier bike couriers. So he used to drop off parcels, all like kilos and kilos of dope, all around London, and he had about six guys all working for him. And at one point, he was a PhD student. Right at the time, he was doing a PhD, and he was like, and and he was purely smoked cannabis, didn't take any other drugs, and he was very like thoughtful and considered in a, a lot of his sort of thinking, I guess. And he said, just in the rave scene, just as the rave scene was starting, he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to use the money that I've made to get a club in Barcelona, and then I'm going to start, I'm going to get some clubs. And as far as I know, he just transferred all that money into the clubs, you know, I, now I don't know whatever happened to that guy, but I often think, yeah, he, he had a different, he was a bit less impulsive. He was a bit less, um, he was a two marshmallow guy. <laughs> I guess we'll come back to that. Oh, that, that, yeah. that yeah. It's going to be a new analogy. Head. It's going to be yeah. a new analogy for me. He's a two marshmallow Gotta try and be a two marshmallow guy rather than that one in mar- marshmallow yeah, guy. And, yeah. and that was, do you think that was part of, of, of uh, the problem again, Mark? You know, I, you're, yeah. you're up in the mountains, you're not allowed to touch anything. Yeah. So you do, they claim you're touching something, but you're going to go and see a man and you're going to buy yeah. what you've always read about in your book. I, yeah. You had your little book, did you? Had your, you had your, it was called The Great Books of Hashish. And, and, and The Great Books of Hashish had in every, every, Every page had a different country. So you had, like, from Nepal, you had Nepalese temple balls. From Lebanon, you had red, gold, hashish. So you had these beautiful pictures, right? And then a story, a narrative underneath about, you know, what part of the country you get the drugs from, right? So then it would go into Charis from Manali or Milana. And so I had it, like, okay, in my mind, this is where I've got to get, I've got to get. So when we'd be sitting around, this is like, so years before, we'd always sitting there listening to Hot Winder, uh, you know, listening to Roy Harper or something, and they would all be talking about, uh, well, they'd be making reference to the great books of Hashish and saying, oh, we're all going to be in Lebanon, we're all going to be, I remember saying to myself, yeah, but you guys are like not, you, you, you're just smoking weed and you're smoking dope and you're, going to procrastinate i'm going to get there i'm i'm definitely going to get so there was when you got there when you got in the room and you saw it oh oh, oh it was like christmas ross i i it's like you, you know i remember sitting in that room with um Sitaram, right and and uh and i looked he took me he took me right so i'm in this 
little wooden, it's a wooden house in a, a place called Milana. Milana is the highest, it's the best of that whole area. It's renowned, the Italian hippies were always saying, like, get to Milana. Milana is the best charis. It's cream, creme de la creme charis. So, so I get to, um, I get there and I get into his house and uh, Sitaram comes in and he says, okay, how much? I mean, the first time it was only a couple of kilos. I think it was about three kilos the first time. But um, he says, um, what do you want? And I say three kilos. And then he goes, okay, come on in here. And I'm sitting with these other hippies who are all smoking chillums. And my friend's whacked, you know, he's tired because he's a bit overweight and he's been, we've been climbing this mountain. I mean, it's a serious, it's a serious trek as well. Snow covered mountains. You're trekking for nine hours, you know, and then away down the other side, it's really steep. You've got your rucksack behind you. You keep, because you're top, you know, like in case you're top. I get down to the bottom of the village uh, and, and then I can't touch the houses. They're trying, but, but I get into the, 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 the house, the main house, and, and he says, come in here. And then I look from, from the top, from the ceiling, really, right away down to the, the floor. It's, you know, blocks, big blocks of charis. I like that, like that. Yeah, big blocks, just on top of one another. And, and, and in my mind, I'm looking, I'm thinking, how much is here? There must be like You're converting it. You're converting it. To money. Sorry. Yeah, you're converting it in, yeah. in, into pound sterling. Pound sterling. Aye, yes. it's two thousand pound. It's two thousand five hundred a kilo. There's got to be three hundred kilos just in this room alone. Do you know what I mean? So what what we're talking about? Six hundred thousand, at least six hundred, seven hundred fifty thousand. We've got nearly a million just in this room. But to him, it's only worth it's worth seventy five pound a kilo. You know what I mean? It's not worth two thousand to him. He you know he lives on. He lives on a pound a day, you know, on, on rice and sabji and, and dal and chapati. You know, it's like, for him, it's, it's nothing, really. It's like peanuts. It's, you know, but for me, I know, all oh, right, in London. And also, the, the kudos, the, 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 you know, that I would get from getting it back as well. Was that part of it? Was it part of it? Oh, definitely. It's like, I have been up the mountain and I've been driven. on the other side. I have managed to get this. Yeah. I, have, I have duped customers. I, I have duped governments, and also I'm making a profit. So I, what about the profit? Was it? It was about people, the entire. It's 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 about an adrenaline, and that's something that's always been a part of your nature. It's a part of your nature now, isn't it? You like your motorcycles. You like climbing. You like doing all those things. That yeah. You that. And when you were younger, you liked to jump from roof Which, to roof. Yeah. Yeah. It's adrenaline. But now I've got to be really careful because now the difference being I've got two wonderful children, right, teenagers, and I've got to get the balance. I've got to. So when I'm on that bike, which I was a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to be on it tomorrow morning, and I'm like going along the motorway, the M25 or whatever it is, and it's a sports, so it's 180, it's a, you know, it's a fire blade. So they, you know, seriously fast bikes, but I then go to myself, look, I've got two, a flash, it flashes in front of yeah. me, those faces of my children, yeah. as I'm passing them, maybe a lorry or something, it flashes, it, and, and what happens in that moment is I go, it's not about me anymore, it's about them. I want to be here for the foresee, I want to be here 
in my eighties. I want to be. I want to see them getting married. You know, if they get married or they don't get married or they get kids, I want to be here for the for the for the rest of the well as long as I can be. Yeah. So that's the difference. And the difference is when I was younger, but not not to say I don't have mad moments. When I was doing the paragliding recently, I got like a bit of a what am I doing up here, man? This is nuts. Like I was hitting thermals and I. Yeah, I've done that, man. You keep going up, okay. you want to come down, yeah. Aye. And no matter which way you pull the toggle, you Aye. keep going up. Yeah, Aye. yeah. You've yeah, done yeah. it. Aye, you've done it. Yeah, yeah. One of isn't it? That's what you also, if you're on a kind of resort, which I was uh, in Switzerland, I started looking at the rig and seeing how few of the actual lines that were supposed to be coming up from the seat that I was in and the shoe yeah. were not attached. Aye. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. I want to talk Aye. about you. So I want to talk about you start becoming proper drug smuggler. I uh, yeah, yeah. And and with that goes hey, it's a lot of adrenaline, but go, there goes a lot of risks. It's uh, not just risk, yeah. it's not just the authorities that you've got to deal with. You've got to deal with the other criminals. I uh, oh well the criminals. I uh, and the biggest and, and and with that, Ross, right, this is what we've got here. My fear a lot of time was not the police or not the authorities because I because in that in my mind I had worked out, you know, like stashing the money, like putting the money in different bank accounts that couldn't be, so making sure that the assets couldn't be frozen. Or So you can work out a plan. You've got a strategy around, okay, well, you know, because you've got, it comes, you know, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. You know that you're doing this action, the likely consequences if you get caught, or if you walk through customs and excise and you get five kilos or 10 kilos or whatever you've got in your bag, the likelihood is if it's Heathrow, you're going to get this amount of time in prison. If you go through Amsterdam, so you're doing all these, it's all calculated risks, isn't it? You're, you're like going, well, Amsterdam, what's the likelihood? It's all gamble. It's all like a, a gambler, really, isn't it? And again, and again, that's addictive. Oh, really? Because, because, Ross, see the high that you get when you get through in that moment. You think, what's happening? Exactly the same thing as when I was a little boy. My amygdala was getting triggered. Right, with my dad feeling that, like, when I escaped or ran away from, I got away from his grip. I felt that I got the rush from the chase of him pursuing me, but then I got the, I got, oh, I'm, I'm safe, right? Which is another high as well. So, what would happen with that? As soon as I got through the customs, and I'm, I mean, actually, throughout the airport and then down on the tube or in a taxi. As soon as I'm, I've left, and I know I'm, I'm safe, right? I've got it all in my suitcase and it's fine. The, the buzz, the buzz from that was like. But then what happens is, you, I've never, I've never had it any other way. Where I, after I've got away, I thought I could have had another five in there. I could have wow. had another ten. I could have had because look, I've already got through. So what would it? I should have taken a higher. I should have just bought 30 kilos instead of 10 kilos or you know it's like it's it's always there's always that sense of more i want more i've, I've not got enough if you're an addict you spent time in prison haven't you yeah just in spain and alarin del toro and malaga and and that in itself and, and also in belmarsh that's when we were talking the last time wasn't it about belmarsh and that was just a small romance at the time uh, and so I was incredibly, if we're looking at, you know, prison time and for the things that I'd done and the lifestyle that I led, I was incredibly fortunate that I never got caught for 
loads of the things. Oh, yeah, in Thailand or in Malaysia, definitely get the death penalty. That's what I was going to say to you, because you you, you smuggled flesh into Thailand. Into Thailand, yeah. A lot of it. Yeah. There's no question there, particularly in that time. Yeah. You'd you'd have been hung, right? I I think I think so. You, or, or you might have got you might have been lucky if you got the embassy to come in and and got some type. Of, I, I don't know. I mean, I really. License. I yeah. It'd have been life though, wouldn't it? It was life. I life in a Thai prison. But to be in the position you are now, yeah, which is where you help people who are addicted. Yeah. When you were at the height of your addiction, and you were dealing, did it ever cross your mind that you were harming other people? Right, brilliant point. Yeah, uh, so I think I think I would have. Right, I think I, I think I did, but I think I justified. I think what happens to me, what happened to me, uh, and probably what happens to a lot of people is they justify in their head. Well, if I don't do it, somebody else will do it. Somebody's always going to, you know, um, pick this up. And also the drive to get the money or the drive to get more of the drugs. Uh, I guess, you know, if you're looking at conscience, look, uh, you know, a healthy, somebody with a healthy sense of, a healthy value system or conscience, um, as the Catholics would have called it, is is like, um, they would go, well, no, this 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 is causing harm. This is could cause harm to me. It causes harm to others and their self-esteem because they've got they've got a value system they say well i'm not going to do i'm not going to do anything that's going to harm me i'm not going to i'm not going to do i'm not going to do a, a partner behavior that continues to harm me or continues to harm others but i think addicts right because their self-esteem is so low they just do it over and over again because there's no love for themselves they don't have any love for themselves they they're, they're They've not got the ability to show love to themselves. So therefore, how can they show love to other people? This is the biggest thing about the whole recovery process and learning to love someone else or learning to love other people. But let's deglamorize this a bit because we've, we've talked about the sort of glamorize, the, 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 the smuggling, but the, the, the awful reality of it, particularly yeah. Yeah. Like if you become an addict, an addict of, of something like heroin, yeah, is that there is no glamour attached to that? No, no. no listen, you've lived that. You've lived that life. I give me an example of what it was like to live on the streets of London as an addict. So let, let's let's I go straight to that. So get away. The ego gets deflated. I've not get any prestige or kudos because I'm not a drug I'm smuggler anymore. No money. I'm a street addict. So I'm surviving every day on either a gyro or or stealing stealing butcher meat or stealing razor blades. I mean just I'm just thinking about low level petty crime to subsidize a habit or I'm selling heroin to to get my heroin for free. No, I was gonna ask you, yeah, and I've decided not to, what it feels like to shoot up for the first time. I'd rather hear what it's like to be sick when you can't get what your body says it needs. well, you're de- you're de- you're desperate because every cell in your body. I mean, and I think more so than it is for uh, alcohol withdrawal. I'm not saying the DTS is not horrendous as well, but with heroin, some people argue that one is worse than the other. I think it probably depends on who you are and, and what position you're in. I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, yeah, absolutely right. And I, um, so 
what it feels like is every every cell in your body is craving for the chemical that no that you know if you t- if you get it into you, uh, you're you're not going to be sick anymore, and you're not getting and this is it you're not getting high anymore like you used to get high where the heroin the you know and I'm not going to I don't yeah I shouldn't get into that but basically it's not having a pleasurable effect what it is is getting you normal people say getting straight all you're doing is you're you're getting the heroin just to feel normal so then you're going out say you're going out and you're shoplifting or you're like say you're going shopping what it was like for me when i was shoplifting i go into say oxford street or whatever and i go into john lewis and i'd be st- going to steal something just clothes or whatever it might be and i would know that i'm going to get caught because the likelihood is you stick out like so thumb you're an addict you, you, you're sweating you're you look grubby you're you're you, you know so so i'd know that i'm but i'm powerless because i need the money because I, because I'm, because I'm sick as a dog. I'm actually maybe physically sick as well. I'm actually vomiting. I've got loads of mucus. I'm sweating. I'm getting hot and cold flushes. The whole cold turkey thing comes from the chicken thing, isn't it? It's like uh, you, you have like pimples of like where you're just one minute you're really really hot and you're sweating profusely. Next minute you're really cold, and then and then you've got no energy, right? To get from. It's it's a bit like you know we've got the COVID going on here now, and, and I'm not I'm not saying it's similar to the virus, but I I would say like flus, where of the nearest I get to it when I've had a flu, that would be like what it's like having the the symptoms of withdrawal. But of course you can't sleep, and it goes on for days. Like so, when you can't sleep, you know, like for five six days. So then you get the sleep deprivation, then you get the paranoia. Also, you're living and you're either in love with maybe at some point other addicts. So you have formed relationships. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. all you're all you're in this kind of horrible melting pot where, as we talked earlier again about the addiction, ultimately you're only ever going to love one thing, and it isn't going to be no. you. It's not you, and it's not the people around you because you're all fighting for one thing, aren't you? Yeah, you're all wanting the heroin. And, and and if you're in codependent relationships, it's like the crab bucket, right? Any, any crab that tries to get out the bucket, the other crabs pull them back down. It's like that. That's exactly what it's like. So as soon as somebody says, listen, I'm going to go and get clean, or, or say the person does start to go and get clean, what you find is the other people start to offer them drugs. They might never... Come back. Go- Come back. Be like me. Be I like come me. back because you're shining a mirror. So Mark, um, part of the Chemcasts and being being a guest on the Chemcasts uh, is to help people who listen in to not only understand how you overcame your your toughest moment, um, but also help them with advice should they be facing something similar in the future. So so I know you've been strangled out in Lima uh, by, by robbers. You've had guns thrust in your face, mate. You tried to kill yourself numerous occasions with drugs. What what has been the toughest moment for you, and and how did you overcome that toughest right, moment? Yeah, the toughest moment was 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 definitely at the end, and the end was in this toilet in St Thomas's Hospital. And previous to that, the context of it is that for maybe about a year, I was like. I was really lonely. I'd like a lot of the people associated with were not friends. They're just 
what happens is you gravitate towards other people who are who are addicts and but there's no there's no there's there's nothing there's no depth to those relationships it's just getting and finding ways and means to get more drugs or alcohol oh god the, the time around when the end of my using with my friend at, uh, in that toilet uh, in St Thomas's hospital was uh, my rock bottom I'd say that night was my rock bottom and and it, it what was, happened and the rock bottom was because uh, he gave me John, John. His name was was John. Gave me some diamorphine. He was HIV positive back then. You could, if you were a heroin addict back in ninety two, ninety three, ninety four, you could. Uh, if you're a heroin addict and you had HIV, they used to give you diamorphine amps, like which is just heroin, pure heroin in an ample form. So I go with him to the hospital. He gives me an amp. Uh, I shoot it up in the toilet. I go. I slightly go over. I'm not quite. I've not overdosed, but I, I I go into almost like an overdose. Uh, but I come out of it, and the toilet's, right, so I'm in the toilet. The toilet's light's been put off. So when I wake, come to, it's completely dark. So I immediately think I've lost my sight, right? Because, but then I'm, I'm like sort of like on this toilet, uh, and I'm, I, then I look down and I see a glimmer of light at the bottom, which is underneath the door of the of the door in that in that hospital, the uh, toilet door. And I see like, and then I so I get I get I come out, I follow the light, and then I, I see the light on the wall, and I put the light on, and I go back into the cubicle, and and I am I am basically crying out inside from my spirit, like really like. If there's anything there, please help me, right? Please, if there is a God, I really, I, I, I really need, I, I need you to help me. And you know, and and I'm in the rock bottom. I'm thinking, I'm su- I've got suicidal ideation. I don't want to commit suicide because I, I mean, my pride was like saying, what would people think about me if I committed suicide? It's a bit late. You're already dead, you know. But but that sort of like so my pri- like I couldn't bring myself to killing myself but yet at the same time so that night I cried out I didn't go down and kneel on the floor and do that but I just sat in that toilet and I I just and then after that a sequence of events happened where I wound up getting arrested I wound up getting sent to Belmarsh and and it was the beginning of me applying for treatment to go into a rehab really and then if I fast forward six years later I I'm in that same hospital. My child, my child has just been born, Finn. Uh, I, I'm upstairs. I'm upstairs. I'm with with my partner at a time. Uh, I I look at my son. I'm 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 elated. I'm elated. Uh, fatherhood, fa- apart from being clean, the next best thing ever that I've ever done that I'm proud of is being a father. Right. So when I witnessed when I witnessed him being born, I came back downstairs and I went into that same toilet and I looked in the mirror at the man. I looked in the mirror at the man. Same toilet. Same toilet. Same toilet. And the same toilet. And I remember the cubicle and I looked across. There's the cubicle. That's where I sat six years ago in absolute pain. Want to kill myself. Complete dereliction. Emotional bankrupt you know, spiritually, mentally bankrupt, you know, a shell, a shell of a man, right? And then I looked in the mirror and I I'm just became a father 
and and I I just look and I just thought I am so I am so happy I'm elated. So to have both of those experiences in life in one life is like most people never have that experience. That that absolute rock bottom uh, to this this feeling of absolute you know feeling beautiful you know so happy and. I think that that's where my that's how I feel. I genuinely feel really grateful. I mean, and, and lots of people with addictions, because they've had such a it's been life is so difficult in the addiction. Most things don't. It, 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 I mean, things phase them obviously, but when you reflect back on where you come from, you can't help but really count your blessings and thank God, because that's that's the alternative. The alternative is. And this is this is what spurs me on, you know. Twenty three and a half years, I'm nearly I'm nearly twenty four years. I'll be twenty four years clean in December the fourth this year. But what what's happened in that time? I buried my dad. My dad got fifteen years. I helped my dad get sober. He he's in sobriety. My cousin, I helped her get into sobriety. My mum, my mum doesn't. I mean, not that she was really an alcoholic, but she she's got her, her son back. I've got two children. I've never seen me take drink or drug that I've got a, such a strong connection with. I've got lovely, beautiful friends. I've got, you know, so there's, you know, I've got a good career. I've, you know, obviously wrote these books. I'm connected. I mean, it's, there's, there's so many blessings, you know, but, but what's, on, what's on offer, if I decide to take a drink or a drug on the impulse and go, oh, well, things have changed and now I'm a therapist and I've got healthy self-esteem, I've got healthier self-esteem and that's what's on offer. Would I gamble, would I gamble all of the, all of the, the blessings just to have a couple of pints or to try and have a couple of pints in a social setting where, where who, who, who am I going to have it with? Then all my pals are in recovery as well, mm. Russell and everybody, you know, it's like... But you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you would not, for all the goodness that you've now found in your life, those two drinks are not worth losing all of that. Oh, never, not in a million years. Could you just outline for people who don't know what the twelve, the 12 steps are? I know you have to be very careful about this. So I, yeah. We're not going to touch on it in great detail. I, yeah. But just so people listening I, understand yeah. okay. what the 12 steps uh, really yeah. essentially are. Uh, 12, steps, is it 12 steps is a program that was set up in 19, initially from 1935 by, by, by really a broker. I'd call him a broker, wasn't really a broker, but he worked in the financial industry back in 1935 and a doctor. And these two guys were alcoholics and they realized um, that they couldn't stay sober on their own, that, but, but being together and talking to one another, they could stay sober. But essentially there are 12 stages that you have to fulfill, and, but you also have the support of a friend or friends yeah, and it's about shared experience and about yeah. creating understanding and about friendship and support. Support, absolutely. And, and is, that, is that it? I mean, I, yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. A sponsorship is a big part of it. Doing service, doing so altruistic. I've done a bit of service this morning, so doing something for free, you know, giving of your time for free to support other alcoholics and addicts. Uh, you know, uh, the twelve steps. Are, it's like it's like guidelines of how to live your life because the first step is we are powerless over our, our addiction that our life became unmanageable. Second step, we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. 
So there's a thing about God, you know, there is an influence of, of God within it, but not, there's lots of people who are atheists and agnostics who, who go to meetings and, and use, and then there's, then there's, so there's 12 steps right through part of the step processes in the main process where you make a list of all the people you've harmed and then become willing to make amends to them. You do an inventory of yourself where you, where you really examine yourself, your motivations, you look at relationships, you look at sexual relationships, you look at shame, guilt, fears. So you start to really... You strip yourself away, do you? I mean, yeah. you take yourself back to what was originally you before you became addicted, I guess. That's it. That's it. That's it. You're trying to get in touch with your authentic self, who you really are, not who you think you are, not who, if you're in a relationship, who she thinks you are. You're trying to be the real, to get to the real man or the real woman. And what are your, not my ego, not, not like uh, who I think I am, you know, when I'm a drug dealer, a drug smuggler, or, you know, what's really going on under all that? What's, what's the, What's the roots of it? The insecurity, the fear that I don't feel enough, so I've got to be somebody different. I'm definitely guilty of it. I mean, I, 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 I still drink and, um, you know, sometimes I drink too much and hopefully I've got it under control. But I would say that I have used alcohol, particularly when I was younger, as a shield, as a barrier. Yeah. Whether it was to, to make myself feel more confident or whether it was to hide. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Um, yeah, same here. Ross, I've definitely done. You know, as somebody who has been involved with drugs in both sides and looks at it and, and helps people now, is there any way that you would say that the legalisation of narcotics should be considered? Is it too impossible to enforce? Well, well, could it be enforced? And would it be across, would it be a blanket enforcement or would it be only certain types of narcotics? I know, and how do you regulate it, right? And how do you then, private industry, right? Look at private, and look, so then it becomes like Marlboro. Marlboro you, cannabis, yeah. Marlboro cannabis, yeah. yeah. Oh, and, then, whatever. and then we've got to consider, look, the THC, right, as back to this thing. Do, do you want to talk about that now? Like, yes, I do. Yeah, I think with the two, I mean, I've noticed, and I've been obviously working in prisons lately, talking to a lot of people. I'm, I'm breaking into um, a cannabis factory, which was three terraced houses in Greenwich the lights came on at different times to all intents and purposes there were three families living there the windows were electrocuted they took the power off the mains all the plants in there were being kept at such a level the female was being kept at such a level the buds were humongous and 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 there was one kid in there a Vietnamese kid he had a bag of rice he had some chicken stock, like chicken cubes, could be like, yeah, yeah. cubes, and that was all he had to eat and tap water. And he would be he would be replenished every three weeks by Mr. Big, whoever Mr. Big was, or Mr. Medium actually. But you know the levels of THC are causing severe, and I would say severe mental health issues to a lot of young people, particularly I, absolutely. in the UK right now. Would you go along with that? I totally. And 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 when even even years so even when I was like manager of these drug services in Hackney, we used to go to the mental health units in in Homerton Hospital and we could see and, and they could see that at least 50% of the young men, right, that were developing schizophrenia or bipolar they all were cat they were all skunk users they were all smoking skunk There's, there is absolutely no doubt right if you've got a predisposing 
if you right if you've got if you've got a vulnerability to any mental health condition and you smoke THC that the that seventeen or the levels percent the levels with with no CBD in it you're going to have a problem so I think I think if we legalized it's very different legalizing old school cannabis that was around the way back in the 80s, which had, which was 6% or 7% and it had CBD in it. And, you know, it, it, that's a different, it's a different drug. This is a psychoactive drug. Yeah, yeah, no, and exactly. And the, 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 you, I don't think it's ever going to happen, well, not in my lifetime, because there is still a number of people out there that see it as a gateway drug. And, and, and I'm just talking about cannabis at the moment. And also, it's an incredibly big business, the war on drugs, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, 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 absolutely. It's a big business. business. It's a billion, billion, billion dollar business. Isn't it? I, I know. And you've got, I, I the, uh, uh, breaking the taboo. There was that film out. My friend was in it because, um, yeah, that it's, it's a massive business. Even, even if we look at things like in Glasgow, the, the, the amount of money that's spent on treatment, right. And how much of that treatments to do with pharmaceuticals. So, so really the pharmaceutical companies like with methadone and stuff, uh, basically, and the contracts that are given that are, that are continually reinforced year after year. And say like the prison state, you've been in the prison state. So look, say we take Berlini prison and we're looking- where, where, where basically nearly a tanker turns up with methadone once a week. People are sicking it up and selling it. Right, that's it. That's exactly what happens, right? So how are we addressing, look, the outward addiction the, the drug or the chem, whatever chemical is used, that's not the problem. The problem is the addiction, right? If we don't deal with the underlying issue, right, we're just putting a plaster over, right? Methadone is a plaster. Well, actually, methadone is not just a plaster. Pla methadone is, if I was to come off, if I was to choose, if you were, if I was addicted, right, if I, if you could make me addicted and say, look, you can either be addicted, Mark, to heroin or methadone, I'd far rather be addicted to heroin than methadone because methadone takes so long to come out the system. It's, it drags on for so long. So what we've got here in Berlini Prison or all prison estates throughout the country is we've got a whole group of guys that are, you know, the 5% the, the of the population are committing 95% of the crimes. So we've got the acquisitive, we've got this group of people who are all at, like, who are all like maybe street addicts and they're committing the crime, they're going into the prison estate, and what's happening is they're getting put on a methadone, or they're putting, or, or they're taking spice, or they're taking, but nothing's really getting done to address the addiction. Last question, Mark. Hi. Um, and I thank you. It's Hi. great, mate. And you are a mate. Um, but thank you for thank being you, so Mark. honest, brutally Likewise. honest. Brutally honest, man. Um, if there's anyone out there currently listening uh, to the podcast or possibly watching it, uh, looking to beat addiction, what advice would you give them? Yeah, what I'd, what I'd say, Ross, like, guys, if there's any, or girls out there, 12-step, there's lots of 12-step fellowships. For every single drug that is out there, there's a 12-step fellowship for that, which I mean is that there's, there's lots of different 12-step fellowships. You just need to look online and you'll see them. Also, your local drug and alcohol services, if you've got a problem, or if it's gambling, it could, I mean, I'm talking about drugs and alcohol, but it might be a behavioral addiction, it might be gambling, it might be sex, it might be uh, sex and love, it might be codependency, it might be workaholism, it might be gaming, whatever your addiction is that you want to change, 
there's, there's a 12-step fellowship for that, but there's also services out there that you can go along to and you connect, you can connect in with and just say, look, I need help with this. Please, can you, can you help me? The, the first thing you would say is you've got, you've got to pick the phone up. You've got to start talking. I've got to pick, to you. ah, you've got to and, ask. And a bit help. of acknowledging, yeah? That's I acknowledge that you've got a problem and, and, and acknowledge that you want to change it. And also understand that you can achieve this. Like, listen, addiction, you don't have to die being an addict. There's lots of, there's lots of us out there who've, who've overcame addictions and changed their life. And really, you know, there's, there's, there's loads of success stories, you know. So just know that you can achieve it. You know, have, I, I, I would love to just sort of zap some hope into anybody who's listening to, to say, look, if I, and listen, if I can do it, you can do it. Believe me, if I can beat, beat addiction and, and or break addiction a day at a time for all these years, you can do it as well. Believe me. Mark, thank you very, very much. Yeah, it's great, Ross. It's great. It's great. You're a fantastic guy. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and the Chancer Collective production. Thanks to the team and one fine play. And until the next episode, goodbye. 